The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome. It's good to talk with you. I hope you can hang out with me for at least another hour. We've got a lot to get into. Right now, there are all kinds of ethical issues that we are facing here on the planet. I mean, we have all these international affairs we just spoke about, right? The real need for prayer, real need for for peace, real call to, to peace. Um, you know, you, you take a look at just what's happening globally, and I try to take that big picture view. I mean, euthanasia, of course, it's on the rise. Its boundaries keep pushing further and further back, and there are questions being asked about the morality of vaccines. People still, you know, are arguing over that. Uh, you know, certain medications that are made or tested with fetal cells. You've got moral questions about machines and warfare and how they're going to be used and whether or not drones and robots should be autonomously, you know, shooting at targets. Uh, we live in a, a very different age, don't we? A very different time. You know, all of these types of issues, and I can give you a whole litany more. You know, they occupy... Uh, the thinking about, you know, not only our lives, but think about it, the ethics of what's going on in in space. And it can almost seem like an unnecessary task, but actually it's becoming more urgent. Elon Musk, and I, and I want to talk about space for just a moment here, since we're talking about warfare here on, on you know, on, on the planet. Um, Elon Musk, he said that he can get a manned spacecraft to Mars in the next five to 10 years. And, and it raises questions about, let's say, even occupying another planet about separating people from their families for that long a time and whether or not it's just a one-way trip. I had heard at one point in time that, you know, we can get you there, but we won't be able to get you back. Um, and then also if you take even a broader look at this, um, will the human race bring, you know, our problems with us wherever we go, whether, you know, we terraform Mars or find some other habitable planet, there are all kinds of, of issues, uh, and, and questions that, that are raised. And then, of course, the new frontier is, is is space, right? So there's issues with warfare in space. A lot of science fiction envisions these military battles happening, you know, there. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the news story for, gosh, it wasn't that long ago. Russia shot down an old satellite in a demonstration showing that they're capable uh, of whether it, you know, to do to a satellite. Uh, they did it to their own, but... If we got into a conflict, um, I'm sure our enemies, our adversaries, would want to blind us, right? And how do you do that? You take out our satellites, you know. Uh, ho- hopefully, space will be, you know, battle-free. It'll be war-free. But we'll see. Brian Patrick Green, he is Director of Technology Ethics, and uh, it's great to have him here with us. He's with uh, Marcola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. He's, his work is focused on the ethics of technology, including artificial intelligence and even space exploration and the, the technological manipulation of humans and a whole lot of other things, a relationship between technology and religion. And he, he's the author of a book, and you might want another good read. Again, I was talking about books yesterday, Space Ethics. Uh, what's the future hold? I mean, from exploration to 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 warfare. Um, he joins us today and love to tap into his expertise. Uh, Dr. Green, it's good to have you with us. Thank you for your time. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it, it's a fascinating topic to me, and there's so much to think about. And I know it threw a lot on the table. It's very broad, but uh, we seem to have a lot of problems on Earth. 
<laughs> so, you know, Absolutely. now we're going to space. I wonder if we're going to take it with us. Um, you know, I know you told Dr. Charles Camosi that, that, you know, we used to call space the heavens. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that terminology. It might be a good place to, to, to begin. What's the significance of that, of, of that change of terminology, if you will? Well, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting and important question when you when you think about the fact that that, that you know this the, the the heavens the stars above and and the the, the sun and the moon um, they they used to have this very far apart very sacred and separated aspect to them but now we're talking about actually going out into these places of course we landed on the moon a long time ago and and uh, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars but he hasn't gotten there yet. But this transition of, of something that's gone from the sacred to the secular, um, I think, has really um, opened up a lot of risk in the way that we interact with space. It's uh, it's uh, made it something that that we feel like we can. I mean, there's there there's there's thinking about touching you know touching the heavens or these things. They they can lead to problems of hubris and pride, and all those sorts of things. Um, so I think we need to really be careful. And I like what you said in the in the start there when you were talking about are we going to bring all our problems with us and and you know the sad thing is that we're human beings and we have yeah. sin and and it is going to follow us but we can try I think harder certainly harder than we are now to try to uh, to control these sorts of evil impulses and and really uh, use use the heavens for something holy and not something completely profane. Well, when you think about the mystery. Uh, of space, um, I can't help but but see God and His creative nature. I, it's it's really an awesome um, mystery. You know, you, we we still are unlocking so much of of the mysteries of space. And, and you know, one way to I think love God is learning through you know, learning more about His creation. And uh, you look at that night sky, and you, you look at the mysteries that that loom there. I think uh, I think a lot of scientists, the more they discover that they don't know, the more they they realize there is a uh, you know there's a divine intelligence behind all of this. How do you see it, and what has your experience been? Does the the mystery of space, I don't know, tilt your lens, so to speak, towards towards a divine creator? How do you see it? Do you have, do you have marvel at even even more at the greatness of God? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that I became Christian, I, I, I was I was raised in a in a family that was, you know, my mother was Catholic, my father was atheist. I was raised watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and mm-hmm. I kind of absorbed that scientific atheism and thought that for a long time that science and atheism were the same thing, but they're really really not. Um, science eventually led me to Christianity. Um, because you get to a point where, where you say science is completely rational, and then you go back to the very start of the universe following a chain of, chain of causation all the way back to the beginning, and you say, oh, my, my method just failed. <laughs> science doesn't work here anymore. Um, however, science is actually built on a whole lot of philosophy that is ultimately Christian philosophy and theology. And I think that when we recognize the fact that science really comes from Christianity— then that helps us to recognize that, that, yes, studying science is an act of worship. We can understand more about God. We can see the glory of what God has done. It's, it's so amazing what's out there, and there really is so much to learn. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I, I, I often wonder, we've discussed um, God's creation and the human soul, and we've talked about the possibility of, of 
extraterrestrial life, uh, you know, astrobiology, the whole other area. But there was a theologian by a guy named Ted Peters who ran a study a few years ago that showed that most people think the discovery of extraterrestrial, you know, life or intelligence would cause turmoil in a lot of people's worldviews. And I know the the uh, you know there are a number of different agencies, including the Vatican, looking at how you know people would respond to this. Um, I think a majority of Americans right now believe there's some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence a- out there. Uh, give me your thoughts on it and, and, and how that would sink uh, ultimately just in terms of, um, you know, h- how people would respond to that. Would it change their worldview, their perception of God, uh, of their fellow human being? What are your thoughts? So Ted Peter's study was it's from a few years back, but I think it was very revealing um, he basically asked people from various different religious groups and from no religious background at all, from, from, from uh, either agnostics or atheists or, or those sorts of other worldviews, and said, hey, what do you, what do you think is going to be the impact of, of potentially discovering extraterrestrial re- life on religion? And the, it, it was actually, I would say, kind of humorous, which is that everybody thought it would be a problem for everyone else, but not for themselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, so this this idea that oh, if, if you're a Christian, you think well, maybe those other groups can't handle it, or if you're an atheist, you think that none of the religious groups can handle it, or if you're a, you know, whatever your background is, you assume other people can't handle it, but that you will be able to. I think that's kind of uh, that probably reflects on some sort of human pride there. Um, but I think uh, one of the interesting things about that is that when they were thinking about themselves, for the most part, they didn't think it would be a problem. You know, it was, it was something like 90% to 10% for, you know, averaging across the categories. Um, so most people, you know, the vast majority of people don't think that this would be a problem for their own religion. And I think with Christianity, that's actually correct, because if you go all the way back to the 1200s, um, I, I, oh, now I'm blanking on the, uh, the uh, edict, but there was a... a, a it was in Paris, I believe, the, the Bishop of Paris, um, who said, look, we can't say that God can't create other worlds. God right. could absolutely create other worlds. That is well within God's power. God created this world. God can create as many worlds as God wants to. And if God wants to have people in those places, then that's possible, too. So we have this, an 800-year-old tradition, at least, that says this is an idea that, that it makes sense to us. We conceptually understand it. We have a place to fit it into our theology. I don't think it's a problem for Catholicism at all. Um, and I would say, going back to the discovery of the quote-unquote new world, the Americas, um, that was a discovery of a new world, basically, where, where uh, you know people in the old world didn't recognize that there could be an entire vast continent, multiple continents out there full of people that they didn't know about. And so they were prepared for it because they had these ideas you know, from back in the 1200s. But I think we can reflect on that also going forward, thinking about um, as we explore the heavens, how we should be respectful of the places that we're going to and, and ultimately, you know, not thinking exploitatively like the conquistador is trying to find all the gold right. that they could, but instead trying to go out there and really honor God in the terms of the exploration and the understanding that we can gain from that. I think if we go with the right spirit, right. that things will turn out much better. So where, where do you stand, Doctor? I mean, it's a weird question I'll ask you, but do you think we're alone? Uh, that God created as the universe is our playground to someday populate and, and, and explore, just as we crawled from the caves and took to the plains and ultimately to the seas and then to the skies. 
one day we'll take to the stars and this is all God's creation for us? Or do you think that with those, you know, billions of other galaxies that perhaps there is other intelligent life? And it raises ethical questions as to whether or not they need redemption or, you know, a lot of other questions. Right. Where, where do you stand on all that? So I have I have no idea. <laughs> Neither do I. I think, Neither I, do I. <laughs> but that but I'm happy to speculate, which is that there are just so many worlds out there. Um, the you know people call it the law of large numbers, right? Which is that you have if you have enough uh, numbers of places out there, then then you know it's quite possible that uh, you know other life forms could be out there. Um, and but I I think really either way, the idea that uh, if we're alone, then that's shocking and amazing and mind-boggling and if we're not alone it's also shocking and amazing and mind-boggling whichever way we look at it um it's really uh just just something almost incomprehensible when you when you dwell on it a little bit and i think that really that you know that once again gives us a chance to to be awed by the 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 amazing creation that we're in and and of course the creator who's behind that yeah no i i totally Totally agree with you. You know, you take a look at the probabilities uh, that are out there, and they, they seem pretty great that, yeah, there's probably other habitable planets and intelligent life. But then I saw a TED Talk. I, I really should try to track this down. And whoever the guy was, I forget, it was about two or three years ago I saw it. He made a case for why statistically we probably are all alone. And, and I was mm-hmm. so struck by that. So who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, what I do know is that God created me for a mission and a purpose. I need to be in a relationship with him and... One day, as you know, we'll live forever. We'll be with we'll be with our Lord. Hey, if you want to join us, I'm speaking today, to Dr. Brian Green. Um, you can dial in triple eight nine one four nine one four nine and join the conversation. We are taking a look at uh, Star Wars, terrorism, the ethics of of space, and so much more. It's a great article that I came across, and I'll have my producer Patrick put it up so uh, you can check it out and read it as well. You mentioned Elon Musk as well, and I, I'm fascinated by what this man's been able to achieve. Um, you know, there was a great series I watched that on, on Mars on the possibility. Of, it was, uh, you know, it was a documentary mixed with fiction, you know, with recreation. But um, he says he can get people to Mars in the next five to ten years. That, that seems very ambitious. Um, to me, it seems problematic. But again, who knows? Um, but let's talk about what happens morally and ethically in a situation like that. Because I had heard that, you know, it might be a one-way trip for those first people. Um, what about the prolonged separation from family? What happens if a medical issue arises? Accidents happen, you know? You, you know, who knows? Um, and, and is it even necessary to send people to these other planets? How do you view all that? So those are all completely valid concerns. Anytime you're doing something new and dangerous, bad things are likely to happen. The risks are very high. Um, the risks of, of you know, you're, you'd be completely dependent on technology all the way to, say, if you're going to Mars. And when you're on Mars, you're completely dependent on technology. And if you wanted to come back from Mars, you would be completely dependent on technology for everything until you got back. Yeah. Um, so we'd be in a, in a situation of utter technological dependency. And, of course, technology breaks. Things go wrong. If the rubber seal breaks in the in the spacecraft and you lose your atmosphere, then that's it. If it's yeah. over, um, and of course there there are the other concerns, like we, like uh, you mentioned, uh, leaving behind family, friends. Um, it's it's uh, it's a long way to Mars. It, 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 when Mars is close to the Earth, it takes you know I think uh, something like forty minutes 
just for light to get there. So if you wanted to have a signal, um, you know, if you wanted to just talk to somebody, you can't have a regular conversation. You can't have a radio show with somebody calling in from Mars. It's not going to work. Right. Um, so this this kind of technological dependency is something to really be concerned about because we mm-hmm. don't make perfect technology. We have technology that breaks, and there's right. no way to have perfect technology. We can be very careful. We can have backup systems. We can have a backup to the backup, and we can have you know even layers beyond that. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 a very different situation than we have on Earth because Earth is the perfect place for human beings. Um, it really is uh, you know such a such a wonderful creation that God has given us here. And if we talk about sending people to the moon or Mars, there's, of course, a a romantic aspect of that, of being the explorer and going somewhere no one's ever gone before. But really, uh, when it comes down to it, you're talking about dry, desolate, airless places that are really quite hostile to life. That's so true. Um, go, I'll take a few phone calls if you want to join us. 888-914-9149. My guest, Dr. Brian Green. And Dr. My producer, Patrick, just tracked down that TED Talk. Um, it was done by a guy named Stephen Webb. And the title of the talk is, Where Are All the Aliens? After today's conversation with you, I'm going to go back and revisit that. It, it really was, uh, it made, made a great argument um, for this. And again, you know, we don't know. I'm open to whatever God has ordained. But uh, the TED Talk, Where Are All the Aliens? by... Uh, Stephen Webb. Phil is listening in Anaheim, California. He's got a comment for you, Doctor. Phil, you're on the air with Dr. Green. Go right ahead. Hi, Dr. Green, and thank you for taking my call, Mr. Mariani. I appreciate it. Um, My comment was about the law of large numbers. Um, Just because there is a large amount of something, I don't think it follows that, say, that there may be uh, more habitable life uh, or planets that have life on them for this reason that I know on in the history of Earth uh, there have been trillions and trillions of species that have existed but only one has uh, developed consciousness namely humans so I think as well there may be trillions of stars but that doesn't follow that there will be life out there does that make sense what I'm saying Oh, that absolutely makes sense. I think that's a that's a perfectly valid critique, which is that just because you have large numbers doesn't mean that the improbability of things happening goes down. <laughs> I mean, if 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 it's we don't know what the probab- probability is of there being life out there, we have no idea to have any access to that information because we only have access to ourselves and our own, uh, you know, life here on Earth. So, I think you're absolutely right. We really just don't know. Yeah. Hey, Phil, thank you. I appreciate the call. It's a, it's a great, uh, great comment. Uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot, of course, about the possibility of um, space warfare, too. Uh, we are so dependent right now on our technology in space, you know, to keep us safe, everything from weather, you know, weather forecasting to navigation, a lot of the, the, the benefits of, uh, of, uh, of our satellite technology. Um, and, you know, we're not supposed to have war in, in space. What do you see happening in the not-too-distant future? As, as I pointed out, you know, Russia shot down one of their old satellites, but I thought that was, uh, you know, an indicator to the rest of the world that, look, we've got sa- satellite-killing technology. We can take yours out if we want. There's talk that there are other nations that have put into orbit maneuverable satellites that could take out our satellites. Um, your thoughts on on uh, the ethics of war in space? Maybe you can speak to that. 
I mean, we've really just got to avoid it as much as we can. I mean, we obviously need to avoid war on Earth. There are, I believe, circumstances where war can be justified. That's why we have just war theory and Catholic ethical theory. Um, but in space, uh, it's already so difficult to survive up there that we really don't need to take it to the next level and start killing each other up there. Um, now, of course, that would be assuming that there would be people up there Um which is something that we only have, you know, on a couple of space stations right now on the on the Chinese space station and on the International Space Station. But as you were just saying, we also have all of these satellites up there, and those satellites provide very important services to people here on Earth. Uh, they provide services to, you know, in terms of communication, in terms of navigation, uh, weather, as all those things that you were saying. If a country wanted to, if, for example, Russia or China or India or the United States, there are four countries right now who have demonstrated the ability to shoot down satellites. Right. If one of those countries or if all of those countries decided to start uh, shooting each other's satellites down, it would turn orbital space into an immense, an immense mess, right? A, a mess, an incomprehensibly large mess, a mess larger than the literally larger than the planet Earth. And if that was the case, then uh, something would probably start called the debris, a debris cascade, where all the pieces start hitting each other, um, because everything in orbit moves at miles per second in terms of velocity, incomprehensibly fast. Yeah. And so anything that's moving at a mile per second, if it touches anything else, they're just both going to be obliterated. And if pieces of debris start hitting other satellites and they start crossing each other's orbits, pretty soon the entire planet is just wrapped up in a big cloud yeah. and we'll never be able to get out there until we somehow get rid of all that mess. Um, yeah, so true. And, and there, I think that really is a huge and underappreciated problem right now. We not only have to avoid war in space, we also have to avoid this debris problem, which is already happening yeah. around the earth. Yeah, you saw what happened when Vladimir Putin, when Russia shut down their satellite. I mean, the, the people on the international space station, the ISS were, extremely concerned about their own safety you know so you're right uh it's a major a major issue my guest today if you're just joining us dr brian green we're talking today about uh really the the ethics of space space is the final frontier and uh it's also an important ethical frontier a place uh, whose exploration really is fraught with serious ethical questions uh, and, and we're talking about everything from space militarization to the possibility of encountering extraterrestrial life, to the mining of, of asteroids. And Dr. Charles Camosi, who's a great uh, friend of the program here, uh, did a wonderful article. It was published in The Pillar. And we'll see, we can't put it up on our Twitter page so you can read it. He does this interview with uh, Dr. Brian Green. And the article is called, you can do a quick search for it too. It's called Star Wars, Terrorism, and the Ethics of Space. If this is interesting to you and, and the subject matter intrigues you, you can do a quick search and check that out. Uh, doctor, let's quickly grab another call or two before we run out of time. David is in Scottsdale, Arizona. David, hi. You're on the air with Dr. Green. Hello. Um, I'm looking at this from a Catholic point of view as far as, like, colonizing other planets. You mentioned earlier about how, you know, there, the possibility of, you know, while people went to another planet, the problems would come along with them um, as far as, like, human nature or whatnot. But if, as Catholics, we believe that, you know, the evil one and all those demons are the ones that tempt and cause evil in the world and influence people, would God allow those demons to fly to another planet to be, continue tempting us? David, thank you. And, uh, Doctor, yeah, that's, address a, it? yeah that's, that's a fantastic question. I think 
I think that that of course the the nature of supernatural evil is is so inscrutable in many ways, and and of course God permits this evil to happen. Um, I think that I mean this is this is speculative, right? I I think that we we can't necessarily uh, trust that demons are trapped on Earth, right? I think that they right. because they're they're kind of fundamentally separate from the 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 kind of normal experience that we have. Um, there's no way to, to think that they would be contained here. Um, so I think that they probably could get right. to other places. And, uh, and, and, and that, if that's the case, then, of course, people there would be vulnerable to their, their predations. Yeah, I, I, Doctor, I would think um, you know, these fallen angels can travel at the speed of thought, right? And just because mm-hmm. you leave the Earth's atmosphere doesn't mean that there's no evil on the planet, on, on the moon, you know, on a satellite right. or the ISS or go a little further to Mars or to some distant galaxy. So I think it's one of the challenges of our fallen nature, you know, and, and this journey that we have with God to choose him and to rise above evil. So, yeah, I think that there would be those uh, ethical and moral challenges on any planet that we went to and we wouldn't be immune uh, from the great test that is life because we weren't created for, for the temporal. We were created for the eternal. And uh, one day we'll, we'll all experience that reality. Mike is in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and he wants to ask you a question too. Mike, good afternoon. You're on the air with Dr. Green. Hi. Thanks, Drew, for taking my call. And thank you, Dr. Green. Um, I have a question on space travel, uh, and it concerns radiation. Um, I know even going to the moon, there's, I can't think of the, the radiation belt, but they have, the astronauts have to avoid it or, or they get cooked. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how much of a, of a problem that is, like, to go to Mars or out beyond, you know. Um, so maybe maybe you could just um, tell me how much how much of a factor yeah. that actually would be. Yeah, so that's absolutely a valid concern. Radiation in space is very different than it is here on Earth. Um, there's a lot more uh, radiation in space. And so, like you were saying, even going to the moon, uh, those radiation belts around the Earth are called the Van Allen belts. And so the Van Allen belts uh, presents an obstacle. If you if human beings spend too much time in the Van Allen belts, they will potentially get cooked by them. Uh, it's just too much radiation. Um, and it and it leads to, of course, DNA damage and all sorts of other things like that. Um, so there has been a lot of study done on this in terms of radiation and getting to other planets. And it does present a danger. It looks like if things go right, in other words, if the sun doesn't produce a bunch of uh, solar uh, radiation, accelerated particles, the solar storm, things like that, as long as those things don't hit the astronauts, it's likely that they would be able to survive the journey there. Um and of course, even on the on the surface of Mars, there would still be a problem with the uh, cosmic rays, cosmic radiation coming down and hitting them. Um, so there's there's no way to escape it unless you do something like putting a shielding system around the uh, the spacecraft or putting a shielding system. Um, people have even talked about putting a shielding system around the entire planet of Mars if they could uh, create something kind of like the Earth. The Earth, of course, has a natural uh, you know magnetosphere. That's why compasses point to the north it's because the the magnetic uh field of the earth uh, does that and it protects the earth um mars doesn't have that so people have proposed producing an artificial one if that and and so they've, they've actually you know thought about this and, and written scientific papers about it but uh, all of these things are very expensive they cost a lot of money they make 
if you're talking about space travel, it makes your spacecraft very heavy. And of course, that just makes everything more expensive. So there really is a risk there. And the question is, how much risk are you willing to take? How much money are you willing to spend on trying to reduce the risk also? Right. Well, doctor, um, boy, the phones are busy here. I'd love to take a few more calls. Uh, but I've got to think, I've got to leave it right there. I'd love to have you back where we can talk much more about this. I've got to take a short pause. People want to read your article. I guess the pillar is the best place to get it. And uh, if they want to yep. follow you, what's the best way to connect? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, they can they can uh, look me up online. If you just Google my name, I, I will come up with Brian Green Ethics. will come up and you can see uh, some of the various things I worked on. Well, let's have you back. I'd love to talk more. I'm, I'm fascinated by this and really appreciate your contribution. I would love to be back. I really, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing, and uh, I'm very thankful. Thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Brian Green. Say a prayer for him. Check out the article. It was published in The Pillar, written by a friend of his, Dr. Charles Camosi, and it's well worth the read. And i got to take a short pause. When I come back, we'll talk more. Time is the enemy, right? It goes so quickly. Wish I had more to spend with you. I'll be right back. Today's programming is brought to you by... St. Gregory Recovery Center in Iowa. More information about their faith-centered addiction treatment is available at relevantradio.com slash stgregory. I think it's important for people to make sure that we don't castigate individuals who've been successful and try and by innuendo suggest there's something wrong with being successful and having investments and having a return on those investments. I have earned the money that I have. I didn't inherit it. I, I take risk, I make investment, those investments lead to jobs being created in America. I'm proud of being successful, I'm proud of being in the free enterprise system that creates jobs for other people. I'm not going to run from that, I'm proud of the taxes I pay. My taxes plus my charitable contributions this year, 2011, will be about 40%. So look, let, let's put behind this idea of attacking me because of my investments or my money. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. I always love that. I, I found that refreshing. That was Mitt Romney in 2012. It's an older piece of audio. It was during a presidential debate. And he was challenged because of his wealth. And he defended his wealth. And I thought, you know, this is a really important issue to talk about. The, the, the issue of extreme wealth this half hour. All right. How much money is too much? And I hear you're saying, oh, come on, Drew. <laughs> you can never have enough, right? Well, look at the money of Jeff Bezos, huh? Holy cow. Right, Bill Gates, you can go through some of these guys. Musk, I mean, a lot of big dollars out there right now, right? Uh, I was just talking in the previous segment about Elon Musk, and I'm fascinated by his character, what the man has been able to achieve, uh, saying that you know he has plans to have people travel to Mars in the next five to 10 years. But Musk, of course, is one of the world's wealthiest people. You know, his net worth is somewhere around his personal net worth around three hundred billion dollars. Three hundred billion dollars. Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, getting richer every day. Right? How many times have you used Amazon this past month? Uh, Two hundred billion dollars. Bill Gates, one hundred and thirty-seven billion dollars. Larry Page of Google, one hundred and thirty-one billion dollars. And if you take those four men. Right between between those four guys, you add those numbers together. It's seven hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars. If you put that together, the top ten richest men in wor- the world, top ten richest men, you're well north of a trillion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. 
And the word trillion is being thrown around way too much. You know how many zeros are in that? You know how much, how much interest is earned per minute on that type of money? It's crazy. There, there are probably, you know, two main responses from people when they hear about this kind of wealth. And I think the reaction of some is is almost envy. Oh, I wish I had that. Boy, my life would be different. This would be great. Another is is jealousy and anger. You know, people are jealous of people who have success, you know, who get paid a lot of money, who make a lot of money due to their, their practice or their enterprise or their business, whatever it may be. So, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's human nature. You either want to have that money or you're a little bit jealous or angry that somebody else has that kind of money and they're, maybe they're not sharing it with others. It's also a sense of entitlement. I sometimes find you know, people have a lot of money. People almost feel like people who don't have it feel like they should be entitled to that. So I, let's, let's talk about it. I don't know where you are personally, financially. I don't know whether God's blessed you with unbelievable providence or whether or not, you know, you just struggle to make ends meet. What would you do if you had that kind of money? $300 billion, $200 billion, $131 billion. Uh, yeah. How many yachts can you have, right? How many houses can you have? How many, how many cars can you have? I mean, there's only, you can only have so much, right? I mean, after a certain point, you know, how much more do you need? You know, uh, I don't know about you. It's, it's tempting to believe that, you know, these people who have these vast uh, amounts of money, you know, are happier than you. I don't I don't know if that's the case. I, I don't. I don't know that. But millions of people around the world uh, live in abject poverty. And, uh, you know, my previous career before I got into broadcasting allowed me to travel the planet. And, you know, is uh, I've been in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. I've seen what it was like. I see it was like in Haiti where people you know, are willing to give you their children because they know they can't feed them. They're willing to give up their own child. You talk about extreme. Or in, in the dusty plains of Africa. I mean, I've seen abject poverty in South America. You know, um, there's extreme poverty and yet we have extreme wealth. So there are some people who do good with their money. There's a graph, there's a, what is it? It's a graphic design app. It's called Canva, C-A-N-V-A. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Its founder uh, is a woman named Melanie Perkins, a billionaire. Uh, what I find intriguing about her, she's apparently going to start to give away a lot of her fortune. She, you know, I think Bill Gates, a lot of people are planning to do that. But some of the other billionaires said that they're going to be doing the same thing, but what they're doing, a little bit different. They're going to be giving it to their own foundations. I don't blame them. That's not bad. You know, you can go ahead and give it to, you know, the vision that you've created and know that that'll be perpetuated. Um, I think it was Gates. I'm not quite sure. I don't remember exactly, but I thought he was going to give his children so much money, a couple million or whatever it is, and the rest, not so much. Um, Perkins, on on the other hand, um, this woman, Melanie Perkins, uh, she's going to be giving her money away directly to people in need. And I think that's amazing. Uh, if you're ever down and out, and somebody comes up and they pay that house off or they give you that car or they, you know, go ahead and get you out of debt or they pay your medical bills or whatever it is, uh, it will be a life-changing experience. And she's going to start in Southern Africa. That's what she's going to start doing. So she's going to take her money and she's going to use it for good. So uh, bottom line is money's not evil. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not sinful to have a lot of wealth. Uh, so the question is, do we need to craft laws to say that you can't own that much? Or should we tax those who earn this type of money a whole lot more than they're already taxed, right? Kenneth Craycraft, uh, he's been looking at this question. I've invited him to stop by today. He's an attorney. 
in the James J. Gardner Family Chair of Moral Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology in Cincinnati. And it's a delight to have him here at the table with me today. Good to have you with us, Doctor. Good afternoon. Hi, Drew. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So let's let's talk about wealth. Does the uh, you know, the church doesn't place any upper limit on how much money you can have, right? It's it's you know money in itself is not evil. You know it's the distorted love of it that really creates problems. That's right. No, no, the church doesn't. Now the church obviously has some principles that we have to think about when we think about the uh, accumulation of wealth. But you know all all questions about wealth, the creation of wealth, the accumulation, distribution, investment, redistribution, spending, and so forth. Um, but certainly, no, the church doesn't have any kind of blanket prohibition against wealth. And oftentimes, you know, we point to the example of Jesus in the New Testament himself, who spent time with wealthy people and poor people and didn't condemn the wealthy people for their wealth. He might have condemned them for other things. And even in the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, books like Amos and Jeremiah, the wealthy are never uh, are never uh, condemned by the prophets because they're wealthy. However, they are condemned because they use their wealth to exploit the poor. And that's really what it comes down to, not wealth per se. However, that still leaves open the question that you've been uh, talking about. Uh, uh, and that is, you know, how, how much wealth is too much? And, and do, when we think about these questions, and you know, I wrote a recent piece in our Sunday Visitor asking precisely that question using right. people like Bill Gates uh, and, and Jeff Bezos uh, and Elon Musk as examples, how much is too much? And and if we say that there is X, X amount is, is too much, well, then what do we do? <laughs> uh, right. Do we make them get rid of their money? Do we make them, uh, uh, you know, give it, give it away? And another question to, to ask about all the examples that you just gave and some of the examples that I just gave in the article is that the, the function of the wealth of most of these people that we can think of, that here are these multi-billionaires, uh, uh, these three-figure billionaires, uh, is, is it's a function of the amount of stock that they hold in companies that they right. founded and right. therefore are benefiting from the risks that they took. You know, we don't know about the hundreds or thousands or millions of potential Elon Musk's or, uh, Bill, uh, or Bill Gates's or Jeff Bezos who failed at the business that they tried, whose risk didn't uh, pay off and therefore are laboring in obscurity. So they're difficult questions. And I think one of the things that I think that you were kind of hinting at this, we simply can't come up with a simple answer that that, you know, there's a a ceiling to how much wealth a person should have. And then we should start making them get rid of it in some way, because, you know, it's just it's there isn't any simple uh, formula for how much is too much. And there certainly is not a simple way. Uh, of saying that they can, we should make them get rid of it. How do we fashion a policy or law, for example, that that would accomplish that? And what would it accomplish? Yeah, exactly. Well, what do you make of the current administration's um, attempt to tax more heavily? You know, those yeah. who have this type of uh, of wealth well, is, is that moral? Is that fair? How do you view that? I I don't think it's unfair for uh, I don't think and a lot of people disagree with me on this. I don't think progressive taxation is at all unfair. As a matter of fact, I think progressive taxation properly and judiciously applied can contribute to the common good, which is a staple of Catholic moral thinking. Um, What I would criticize on a recent uh, in a a recent um, proposal by this administration to tax unrealized gains is 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 pure lunacy. Because if you start taxing unrealized gains, what happens if that unrealized gains become gain becomes a, a lesser gain or 
an unrealized loss. All of us, anybody who's ever invested in the stock market has seen particular stocks go up and thinking that, wow, I'm really wealthy. And then uh, then there's a turn and it goes down. So if, if I if I invest ten dollars and it becomes one hundred dollars and the government taxes me on the, that ninety dollar gain, what happens when it goes back to ten dollars? Is the government going to give me my tax back? And the answer, of course, is no. So it, it, it doesn't make any sense to talk about taxing unrealized gains. Having said that, however, it isn't at all on, uh, I, I don't believe, in, uh, unjust to have a progressive taxation or to tax certain kinds of, um, certain kinds of transactions. So, for example, let's use, uh, let's use um, uh, Elon Musk as an example. Elon Musk, very uh, publicly over the past few months, has divested himself of uh, tens. This is just, these numbers are breathtaking, Drew. Right, He's divested right. himself of, ten, of tens of billion dollars of his wow. personal wealth. Now, it still leaves him uh, in the neighborhood of 300 billion. But in doing that, he has uh, he has paid or has a tax liability for 2021 as by his own accounting of 11 billion dollars. That's 11 billion dollars that will go to the United States Treasury based upon his having sold some of his stock. Now, of course, that's going to go in the general treasury that all tax dollars go to. Additionally, he has had a tax hit because he exercised some options. And the state of California, among other states, will tax the exercise of stock options and by complicated formulas that we don't have time to discuss here. I don't think that's unfair either. Uh, but, but if we're talking about just about the accumulation or the measure of wealth that is measured by the amount of stock that one owns, especially a founding, uh, a founding director or a founder of the company, it just doesn't make any sense to start, to start ta- to talking about taxing that accumulation. And if you think about it, right. you know, for example, I, I forget exactly the number is now, but none of these men hold uh, large uh, uh, majority positions in any of these companies. For example, Jeff right. Bezos, he only owns 11% of Amazon stock. Typically, I think somebody would say, well, he must own all of it. He's, you know, he is uh, Amazon, but no, he owns 11% of it. Now, of course, 11% of a $200 billion company is uh, a $2 trillion company equals $200 billion. So it's still a lot of money. Uh, But but that's the way it's measured. It's not measured by cash in the bank. It's measured by the value of the stock that they hold. And by the way, Drew, you hold some of that stock and I hold some of that stock. And many, many of our listeners hold that stock, too. Yeah. My guest today, uh, and it's great to have you with us today, and we'll t- i got to take a short pause here. My guest today, if you want to join us, is uh, Kenneth Craycraft. He wrote a great piece, and uh, we'll try to link over to it on our Twitter page. Uh, Patrick, if you can get that up, that would be awesome. And it's, uh, it makes you think, how much money is too much? Exploring the problem of obscene wealth. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a few of your calls. If you want to get in the conversation, feel free to. A lot to talk about here. We're uh, taking a look at the moral implications of this. Is it immoral to possess that much wealth? And what is the duty and the obligation of those that have built that type of providence? Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash forester. All the issues, one place. One place. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here with you. If you're just tuning in, we're taking a look at, I think, a uh, a great question. How much money 
is too much money. I mean, you could take a look at what athletes get paid. You could take a look at what entertainers get paid, movie stars. You can get uh, a look at surgeons. You could take a look at astronauts. You could take a look at, uh, you know, entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and other. Is there a limit? You know, is there a limit? Um, you know, and what exactly would that threshold be? You know, I, I, I think it's a, gr- a great question. And what is the moral obligation if you have that type of money? Is it moral to possess that much wealth in a world where millions of people can barely succeed, you know, they can barely live, they can barely eat. Uh, I've, I've seen people, you know, living on streets, you know, and walking miles for water. Um, what about the moral implications of all this? I'm joined this afternoon by a guest who wrote a great article. He addressed this very issue and We'll link over to it as well. Kenneth Craycraft he is the James J. Gardner Family Chair in Moral Theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology in Cincinnati, and he's here to address those questions. And let's talk about the moral implications of this. You know, I, I take a look at um, where money can go. Uh, let's say the Gates Foundation, you know, uh, you know, funding population control or abortion or something along those lines. Or you take a look at, you know, this other billionaire who wants to go ahead and you know, feed the the homeless or or give money directly to those who have nothing at all. Uh, let's talk about transfer of wealth. What happens with these people who have this great money? Sometimes it goes into foundations that you know, aren't always moral. And and about the moral obligation, whether you're a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates or whether or not you're just a successful person that has acquired a little bit of wealth. What what is our obligation? What is our duty as a, as a Catholic? Uh, with that money, how should we distribute it, and, and, and how does God want us to use it? I, do you get that? I mean, it's kind of a broad picture. Yeah, well, you know, the the church talks about the universal destination of goods uh, when we think about private property, and we need to think about that as kind of a what we might call a hermeneutical device to by through which a lens through which we look at these questions and ask ourselves. You know, certainly ownership is has always been acknowledged as legitimate private property, private ownership. Uh, you know, when we go back in the Catholic social doctrine tradition, that's always been a, a very strong staple. Indeed, Rerum Novarum called private property a sacred and inviolable right. But on the other hand, we also also should think about ownership in some sense as stewardship. Uh, everything that we own, we are stewards of what we own, and our create our creative endeavors are always a cooperation in God. God's creative endeavor, and so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, our abilities that to to uh, accumulate property and accumulate wealth are because of the blessings that God has given to us, some of us, and some of us. Let's face it, Drew is just dumb luck. So we have to think about things like that. And and you mentioned, and I mentioned the article as well, Bill and Melinda Gates. And I've often told my students, if you're going to give your money away to uh, people who support abortion and uh, and distribution of birth control, I'd rather you just keep your money. So it isn't just a matter of of uh, giving uh, of distributing money or giving to poor wealth, uh, uh, spreading wealth to, to charities and so forth, which is a which in, is a laudable goal in itself. But we also has, have to ask where it goes. You know, another important question to consider on this, Drew, is, is what happens when a big shareholder divests of some of his shares? We talked about um, Musk earlier. You know, when Musk sold all that stock, you know what happened to the price of the stock? It went down. Yeah. Um, and when his the price of his stock went down, the price of the stock of everybody who holds that stock in their mutual funds, their 401ks, their IRAs, their exchange traded funds, they lost value as well. So those questions aren't as easy to say either. Now, I want to be I want to be clear. I'm not sure. defending 
vast accumulations of wealth. I'm just suggesting that the solutions to it are not as simple as we might think. And even if we can come up with, if, even if we'd say, well, what about some other kind of system that would prevent people from accumulating these kinds of wealth? I don't know what that would look like uh, without quashing the, this, uh, the entrepreneurial impulse, which raises uh, wealth and which uh, makes wealth available to uh, all other people. You know, one of the things I like to tell my students is you don't make poor people richer by making rich people poorer. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we, we think we have a, we sort of reduce it to that formula and that just doesn't work. Yeah. That's, that's such a great line. Repeat that for me. If you could, uh, one more time. <laughs> sure. You, you don't, you don't make poor people richer by making rich people poorer. Yeah. I love that. It's so true. You know, we, yeah. we live in a time though, and I'm sure you monitor this right now where we're seeing the rise of a socialistic or Marxist ideology in, in the culture. And, and, you know, socialism, communism in particular, has been such a failed ideology for a long time. And yet a lot of yeah. people think there should be this dissemination, this this equality, this equity in, in wealth. If you have money, it should be given to everybody else. It really disengages a work ethic, too. And there, there's a dignity in work. But it I does. love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. There's a dignity in work and we have to acknowledge that and we have to celebrate that and, and reward the dignity of work. And we're not here just talking about rewarding entrepreneurship. We're talking about rewarding the dignity of work by, by recognizing the, the creative uh, ability of human persons, no matter what they do, whether they collect garbage or write code. Or, or host radio shows. And all of those things are part of what we call the you know, human capital, that ability, that God-given ability of everyone to, to be able to work. And we, we can't, any social policy or any law or economic uh, uh, regulation that inhibits the, uh, that impulse to create, that impulse to take a risk, is going to be bad social policy because that's not going to contribute to raising up the poor. That's going to contribute to keeping the poor down. And, and, and that's all part of this. Now, you might say, well, there's a big difference between, you know, collecting the garbage and these hundreds of billions of dollars. And I agree that that is true. But the difference is a quantitative one, not a qualitative one. And if we're going to talk about how we uh, 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 regulate the accumulation and distribution of wealth, we always have to keep in mind that that the dignity of, the dignity of work is it should be paramount in our understanding of how we do that because to, the moment we start talking about work as not dignified or as not allowing people to reap the rewards of their honest labor, obviously there are p kinds of labor that are that are immoral and unjust in themselves, prostitution, pornography, and things like that. But leaving those things aside. We must recognize the dignity of work, and we can't at the same time recognize the dignity of work and condemn that work if it creates wealth. That, that, that's an incoherent uh, way of approaching the question, and, uh, and obviously that leads to incoherent regulation. And unfortunately, we do see some, some politicians who, who do exactly that. They, they put forward, forward incoherent regulation or regulation policy that, that just doesn't make sense because it tries to do both of those things. Well, hey, Kenneth, it's great talking with you. I really appreciate it. I'd love to have you back. We can dive into this in greater detail. Your article can be found where again? Where did it initially run? It's uh, on. Uh, it's in Our Sunday Visitor. ran a couple weeks ago. So Sunday check that Visitor. out. We're going to link over to it, too. I've, I, I read it this morning. Really well done. Have a great day.